We were thinking about, uh, just this morning I was thinking about it, the, the last week of our vacation Bible school, the last day is Friday. And uh, Friday night at Hammonds Field, they have uh, the fireworks after the game. And so the, I think the 29th is uh, Friday of July, and that's uh, going to be the fireworks. And we've been going over to the church property that we've been working on for the last, you know, four years or whatever. There's a, there's a big uh, concrete area in the back, and so we thought after the VBS, that even we'll all go out there and have pizza and watch the fireworks. And so just to, it'll be kind of cool just to go out there. Because my wife and I have done it the last couple of times they did it, and it's like they're, they're right over your head right there. It's really, really kind of cool. So um, anyway, that's something to, to check if you want to. You want to get involved with CBS and then go out to the fireworks afterwards. Second Peter chapter three verses one through nine this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will get one right to your seat as we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Second Peter. First nine verses of chapter three we're going to cover today. That's not my son, Joey. It's an actual toddler. (laughs) All right, 2 Peter, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and all of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The title of my message this morning is, It's not the end of the world, or is it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you're going to speak to our hearts, that you're going to work in our lives, that you're going to move in our hearts this morning. We thank you ahead of time for that, Lord, that you're instructing us, Lord, not only telling us how to live, but not what to do, but to do to live this life pleasing to you. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, and that they would turn to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think we all remember our moms trying to minimize the crisis we were facing by telling us, well, it's not the end of the world. And that was her way of putting spilled milk into perspective, right? It's not a big deal. But it was also an introduction to a basic human reference point that one day this world is going to come to an end. 
And as we get into chapter 3, Peter's talking about the end of the world and he's talking about those that, that are going to be scoffing at the idea of Jesus' return. I found an illustration of what it would be like if the press really believed that the end of the world was near. What would be their headlines? Well, the Wall Street Journal, if they believed that the end of the world was near, they might have had their headlines, Dow Jones plummets as the world ends. Maybe USA Today, being a little simpler in their headlines, would simply write, we're dead. People Magazine, they would have had this article. Your favorite movie stars, what they will wear their last night. How about Rolling Stone Magazine? They might have had an article entitled, Is There a Rock and Roll Heaven? Ladies Home Journal would include these headlines. Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day with a new Armageddon diet. Golf Digest would have had the article, Make Your Last Round the Best. PC Magazine would simply state, It's Control-Alt-Delete for Mankind. And finally, the Christian Weekly would say, We told you so. (laughs) Is the end of the world really near? We've heard this all before. The idea that we could be the generation that would see the return of Jesus Christ. Well, the fact is, every generation, for the most part in recent history, has interpreted Bible prophecy in light of its own historical experience. And they thought they were the generation, and obviously they weren't, they were wrong. So why should our generation be any different? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. And here's my answer. Well, the Bible gives us certain uh, signs of the times that we are told to be looking for that would alert us to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And what I find fascinating is that there's a greater number of signs closer in proximity to one another than I've ever seen before. So I think we can safely say we have never been closer to the return of Jesus than we are right now. One of those signs, as Peter's talking about in our text this morning, is that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. And we'll look at that closer in just a moment. But there have been other signs that have happened and are happening uh, recently that should be of great interest to the Bible student. What are some of those things? There's a whole bunch I can mention. The, the, the rapid escalation of global wars and, and terrorism. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, well, how does that fit in? Well, in fact, I read a New York Times post three days ago that Russia is looking for allies in its fight against Ukraine and the West, and that Putin plans to meet with leaders of Turkey and Iran. So Iran, Russia, Turkey, sounds an awful lot like Ezekiel 38 and 39, possibly. We know that three days ago, the United States and Israel signed an agreement that they would work together and not allowing Iran to gain nuclear weapons, even if it included a preemptive war with Iran. Wars. Rumors of wars. We see the unprecedented increase in what, in, in, in earthquakes. Another side of the times, you know, that, that earthquakes will increase in the last, last days. And, and we see them not just in normal places like, well, San Francisco or LA or, you know, some, but places where you wouldn't have an earthquake, we're having earthquakes. We see the push for world unity. Uh, or a word we hear a lot. Let's go global, you know, globalization. Creating a one world government. The push for open borders. I'd say we were almost completely in that place of a cashless society. Another sign of the times that we would be looking for is the false teaching is permeating in the church. Like I've never seen before to the scale that it is today. And that's what Peter had been talking about in this letter. 
That too is a sign of the times, even the great apostasy. You know, one or two of these signs, you know, no big deal. But what is significant is the cumulative effect. The convergence of so many more signs at one time, causing me to wonder, are we the generation that will see Jesus' return? Because the Bible says these are things we should be looking for uh, an increase in frequency. And the idea is that to convey that it's of a woman that is getting ready to go into labor. You ladies know what that's like. You know, oh, I think it's time. You get that little contraction and it kind of goes away and gets a little bit strong, kind of go away. And it gets really strong and you grab your husband by his head and say, get me to the hospital. But anyway, they get closer and closer. In fact, Paul writes about that in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 and 3. He says, free yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So when we look at the prophetic signs of the times, effectively they are pointing to the fact that the end of the world, as we know it, could be very near. Specifically what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And we'll look at that closer next week in our next study, uh, what the day of the Lord means. But we may disagree on end time events and the order of events, but one thing we must agree on, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming again. Clearly taught in scriptures, and no Bible-believing Christian would ever dispute that truth. In fact, after his ascension into heaven, you remember the angels said to the disciples in Acts 1.11, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. I wonder how long they would have stood there gazing into heaven had these angels not appeared and said, they would stop staring. He's going to come back. They would have just been there maybe for hours. But instead, they returned to the upper room The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them from heaven and they went about turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. They learned to wait for the coming of the Lord while at the same time working for the Lord as if there were no tomorrow. That's the heart of every disciple. That certainly was the heart of the Apostle Peter as we will see and should be the heart of each one of us this morning. Knowing that time is short, let's pull out all the stops. Live for Christ. Now remember, Peter began this letter by reminding us of all that Christ has done for us. It's been a very loving exhortation to diligently continue in the faith. He informed us that much of his ministry was simply to remind us of the basic truths of Christianity. also told us to search the scriptures rather than merely accepting uh, someone else's view. And of course, the reason that we need to place our faith completely in the Word of God and not on, on people's experiences or teachings is because they are, there are many false teachers around, as I mentioned, and we're seeing more and more of them as we get closer to the, to the Lord's return. And we spent three Sundays going through what Peter had to say about false teachers, how they brought in destructive heresies, how they denied the one who bought them, how they were motivated by greed, and then... Peter, last time, described for us how judgment is going to come to them, just as it did to the fallen angels, just as it did to the people before the flood, just as it did to those that, that died in Sodom and Gomorrah. We finished off chapter 2 looking at the false teacher's reputation, their retribution, their revolting, their results. They're going to get what's coming to them, that God would judge them. Well, now as we begin chapter 3, Peter begins by speaking about this great topic of the coming of the Lord. And in so doing, he's warning us that there are these false teachers that are saying, 
It's not going to happen. Jesus isn't coming back and things are going to always go on just the way they've always go on. Just get off that, that Jesus coming back kick. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things that these false teachers denied. Same things that people are denying today. Number one, they deny the Lord's return. Number two, they deny the history of the world. And number three, they deny that the judgment is coming. Now, before we get to point number one, Peter sets out to stir us up the truth and to cause us once again to get excited about the Lord's return. Look at verses one and two of Second Peter, chapter three. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure mind by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In other words, don't listen to what these false teachers are saying concerning Jesus' return. Listen to the words of the prophets. Listen to us apostles who actually spent time with Jesus and know exactly what he said. Look at how Peter begins the section. He opens up in verse 3 with the word beloved. He calls us beloved. He truly loved Christians everywhere. That was his heart. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in John thirteen thirty five, By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, if we do love one another like we should, then in love we should be stirring up one another to love and good works, knowing we're living in the last days. Remember Peter, he's talking to the church. He knows how easy it is to, to lose focus and fall asleep when we should be wide awake. That's why he says he wants to stir up our pure minds. That word for pure can also be translated sincere. He wants us to remind us of things that, that matter. That, that's Peter's heart. That word for stir also can be the word awake. So here's the idea. Just about every week I talk about the coming of the Lord. I believe we're living in the last days. And here's what happened. Because we've heard it so many times before, I'll come to the end of the study and maybe I'll say, listen, hey, if you don't know, tomorrow may be your last day. Uh, Jesus could return at any moment. And you kind of go, oh, you know, Pastor Tom's okay. He's closing up this morning. He said that last week and Jesus didn't return. And, oh, okay. Where are we going to go to lunch? And it kind of can go over. What happens? The words don't really sink in, is my point. We hear so much truth. We have so much light in God's revelation that we can become drowsy and sleepy in the light of where we actually need to, what we need to do is to wake up. That's why God puts so many warnings in scriptures about falling asleep spiritually. Because it seems to indicate that that can be a problem. Paul, in writing to the Romans, in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, in light of the Lord's second coming, he said this, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Listen, the cure for spiritual lethargy is always scriptural prophecy. Always. Prophetic teaching must not lull us to sleep, rather must awaken us to live godly lives and to win the loss. So Peter sees the importance of reminding them of us of this essential truth. Jesus is going to return. That's why he said in, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 12, For this reason I'll not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in this present truth. I'm going to remind you, even though you know this, you're going to hear it again. Yeah, this world is going to end soon. Jesus is coming soon. And so he says here in verse 2, Be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 
all spoke of the Lord's return to this earth. Peter adds the apostles as well. In fact, that's a central message of the scriptures. 1,845 times the Bible mentions the second coming of the Messiah. 318 times in the New Testament, one in every 30 verses speaks of the second coming and the end of the age. Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament deal with this issue. Seventeen out of 38 books in the Old Testament are given to the subject entirely. The Lord inspired that so much would be written about this because He wants it to be on the forefront of our minds. And you know, just have my word for it. Jesus said it Himself in John 14, verse 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. First direct mention of what's called the rapture of the church. What says, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's been working on it for about 2,000 years now. I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Listen, we need to understand there's three aspects to the Lord's coming to this earth. First, Jesus came to this earth earth as a lamb to be sacrificed for our sins. Secondly, Jesus is going to come in the clouds, in the rapture of the church, as we're caught up, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then the third time Jesus returns to this earth in what's called his second coming. Well, the early church lived as though the Lord could return in the clouds at any moment. In fact, one commentator wrote this. The early church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but a clearing in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker, but the upper taker. This is one of the reasons why the early church was so effective. They knew that the Lord could return at any moment. But Peter wants to remind them, and I said, as we get closer to that day, there's going to be scoffers, there's going to be mockers, there are going to be those that are going to ridicule you for telling people Jesus is coming back. That brings us to point number one. These false teachers, they deny the Lord's return. Look at verses three and four. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, Peter knew that his time on earth was short. And he knew that after he left, these false teachers were going to come in and deny the return of Jesus Christ. That they would deny the rapture of the church. And so he gives us this warning that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, people scoffing at the idea that Jesus could come back. A scoffer is someone who treats lightly what should be taken seriously. You know, if you've ever shared your faith, I'm sure you've encountered scoffers, mockers. Ah, oh, come on, I've heard that before. But Peter tells us why they're scoffing. He says, because, in verse 3, they're walking according to their own lusts. They'd rather live to please their flesh. The message of Jesus returning doesn't fit into their, their lifestyle. Are we not seeing that today? Those that want to live for the moment, certainly they don't don't want to hear that there's going to be consequences for their actions. They don't want to hear anything about God or Jesus returning because they think if they deny it, then they're not going to be held accountable for the way they're living. That's like a little kid who covers their eyes and thinks you can't see them because they can't see you. That shouldn't surprise us that they act this way because they're non-believers. But what should surprise us and disappoint us is that the church is no longer looking for the second coming of the Lord. 
There are pastors and there are leaders today who refuse to teach about the coming of the Lord. They won't touch the book of Revelation. One pastor at a pastor's conference told a room full of pastors, stop beating the drum on biblical prophecy and end times. We're chasing all the young people away from church. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Obviously, they don't remember the many young people that came to Christ in the 70s in what's known as the Jesus moment. Many of them came to faith in Christ because they believed that Jesus was coming back soon. I was there. There was an excitement in the late 70s and early 80s about the Lord's return. I know Pastor Greg Laurie has got a movie coming out in February called The Jesus Revolution. Kind of, uh, you know, documents the move of God's Holy Spirit in the lives of those in the 60s and 70s and God's work that he did. I remember, you know, the bumper stickers that we had. You could drive down the road and there was a bumper sticker that were Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming soon. You know, you see the Maranatha, oh Lord, come. There's a few out today, but not like before. Maybe you've seen this one. Normal isn't coming back. Jesus is. That's true. Very, very true. Though we know that, we're not seeing the excitement we once did for the Lord's return. And I think the reason for it is because the Lord didn't come back in the 70s. He didn't come back in the 80s. He didn't come back in the 90s. And now we're in the 2020s and the words of Peter are ringing true like never before. We have scoffers in the last days. And sadly, many uh, believers have lost sight of the Lord's return, even to the point of compromising in their own life. They might not verbalize their scoffing, but they think it, all because it hasn't happened yet. They scoff inwardly, and it affects the way that they live their lives. Their passion is gone, and they get more excited, uh, or rather more and more worldly each year, as they begin to live only to please themselves. And I know we know people like that. People have walked away from Christ and now they spend most of their time on pleasure, on entertainment, rather than looking to the coming of the Lord. Listen, here's a way to avoid your heart becoming hard like that. Instead of focusing on the coming of the Lord, we need to focus on the Lord who is coming. Big difference. The person who's focused on the coming of the Lord says, it's getting closer, I better get my life right with God, I better get busy. But the person focused on the Lord who is coming says, He's so awesome. He's so wonderful. Uh, He's done so much for me. I want to live for Him. I want to please Him, uh, to serve Him, and to sing praise Him. I want to do all that I can until He comes to take me home. But again, the sad thing is many pulpits across America are seeking to explain away this basic truth of the Word of God. Verse 12, or rather verse 4 says, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What they're saying is that we live in a closed, naturalistic system and events just keep moving along steadily without any kind of, of change or, or cataclysmic event or, or, or event from heaven. It's a belief system known as uniformitarianism. It teaches that things are just moving steadily and slowly without any big changes because they've always been this way. They're always going to be that way. So Jesus isn't coming back because he never really did come back. You know, or, or I'll never die because I've never died. <laughs> Listen, just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it won't happen. So Peter says there's going to be scoffers in the last days. They'll deny the Lord's return. Point number two, they're going to deny the history of the world. Look at verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Scoffers deliberately and willingly deny the history of the world. They're not just ignorant. 
They willingly forget that the Lord spoke the world into existence. They forget that he can easily just speak it out of existence. They make a point to deny that the creation never happened. And we see that today. The Big Bang Theory evolution that's pushed in our public schools denies the history of the world. Darwin denied the history of the world. Bill Nye, the science guy, denied the history of the world. Physicist Stephen Hawking denied the history of the world. In fact, Stephen Hawking once said, one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. The laws of physics can explain the universe without the need for a creator. That's what he said. You know, John Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven, no hell below. Just a hopeless, excuse me, a hopeless state they were in. Again, verse 5, they willfully forget. They purposely chose not to believe it. Peter's saying that they're ignorant of their ignorance. And this may sound bad the way I phrase this, but, but there are actually those that, that can be so stupid that they don't know they're stupid. It sounds stupid. Let me give you an illustration that may not be so rude. You've heard the phrase, they're dumb as an ox being led to the slaughter, right? The picture of this row of oxen, they were making their way up the path where the butchers up there taking the heads off the cattle. Now understand, oxen are pretty dumb animals. So dumb, in fact, that as he looks ahead and he sees a few of his friends losing their heads, he keeps on walking towards it. Now, if they weren't so dumb, they would know. They would say, hold on a minute, I'm not going to stay in this path. I saw what happened to Heifer Hank, you know? A big old cow, Elsie. You know, she just went right out. I need to stop and turn around. I'm walking right to death. I need to stop. But that dumb ox has no idea what's going on. In fact, he may see the one in front of him lose his head and he just follows right behind him and puts his neck on the line and then it's gone. That's pretty dumb. Listen, that is the condition of those who are scoffing at the Lord's return. Those that are laughing at the judgment of God. They're so ignorant, they don't even know they're ignorant. They don't want to recognize that it's like an ostrich who buries his head in the sand. So they willfully deny the Lord's return. They willfully deny the history of the world. And they willfully deny that judgment is coming. And you want to say, stop, get your head out of the sand and look where you're heading. But they don't want to. They willfully don't want to see it. Paul puts it a little differently. He says they can't see it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they have foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Unless a person is truly born again through the Spirit of God, there's, there's blindness upon them. They need the Spirit of God in their life to understand the things of the Spirit. Bottom line with these false teachers was that of unbelief. They not only were ignorant of the spiritual truth, but it was a, a voluntary ignorance. They refused to believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and, and even though they knew better. Even though they knew the facts, they were refusing to accept it. I like the story about Sir Isaac Newton, who had a friend that was an atheist. The friend did not believe God in God, but preferred to take the position that, well, the universe just happened. Well, one day, his friend was visiting. Mr. Newton showed him a model of the solar system. The sun, the planets, the moons were all in place. The sizes of spheres were all in proportion and the planets and they all revolved around the sun just like our solar system. Well, the friend admired the model. That's really, really cool. It's intriguing. Who made it? Newton said, nobody. It just happened. I shared this first service. There's a a gentleman that came up to me right after first service and he gave me this quote. George Wald was an American scientist who studied pigments in the retina. He won a share of the 1967 Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. He said this. Let me see if I can get it on my my tablet. Hold on just a second. Where I put it. He said this. 
Hold on. I'll get it. It's important. I think I, I had it printed up in the other room. Okay, turn off airplane mode. Fine. Okay. He says, there are only two possible explanations as to how life arose. Spontaneous generation, a rising evolution, or supernatural creative act of God. There is no other possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others, but that just leaves us with only one other possibility, that life came as a supernatural act of creation by God. But I can't accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading to evolution. Uh, that, that is a great, great quote. Again, these false teachers, they know the facts, but refuse to accept them. Yeah, I think that's one of the worst sins that are out there today. To know the truth and turn from it uh, is to turn from the love and the mercy and the peace of God. I read a story of an agnostic editor of a publication called The American Mercury. His name was H.L. Mencken, and he died as an unbeliever. At his funeral, following his request, there was no song, no hymns, no speeches, no eulogy, because during uh, Mencken's lifetime, he admitted that he might be wrong about his views about God and the immortality of his soul. But he explained, if I am wrong, I will square myself when confronted in the afterlife by the apostle with a simple apology. Gentlemen, I was wrong. You know, Mencken knows better now. Now he's found out it's not as simple as that. After death, it is eternally too late to repent, or as he puts it, square himself if he's wrong. Five minutes after death, Stephen Hawking, John Lennon, H.L. Mencken, every unsaved, every agnostic, every person who failed to receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ will want to repent then and there. They'll seek to escape the torment in which he finds himself, but it will be too late. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn to God. There are no second chances after we die. And the ignorance and unbelief are not good enough excuses to keep you out of hell. Peter's words here dramatically demonstrate how different, how different the Christian perspective is based upon the Word of God from the perspective of the unbeliever who chooses to believe whatever they want to believe. Peter says they willfully mock the Word of God. Because it's by the Word of God that the whole world was created, that the world began. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't God. We just evolved from pre-mortal ooze and evolved from that ooze to a tadpole, from a tadpole to a frog and frog to a monkey and then a monkey to man. And now we evolved back to whatever you want to be, whatever gender you want to be, what animal you want to be. And that's just the way it works. Complete mockery of God. God said in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Period. And we see today mockery of the word of God, especially the book of Genesis. Man, it's under attack like never before. Listen, we know the Bible says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. God spoke the world into existence. That's the history of the world. In the seven days of creation, every day began with the spoken word of God. Each day began with the statement, and God said. When God spoke, he spoke creation into existence. When God spoke, he took that chaotic mass of land and water and that sustains life, separated it. Same word of God 
reversed the process of creation and caused a flood to, to cause the earth to be, be covered with water. But the scoffers, they're denying that as well. Point number three, they deny the judgment that is coming. Look at verse 5 again and verses 6 and 7. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Noah's flood was an incredibly important event in earth's history. It changed the entire appearance of the earth, but more than that, it was a sign of God's judgment against wickedness. So for these false teachers to willfully deny the flood, they're denying the judgment of God. Now, again, just because they deny it doesn't make it so. Judgment is still coming. Peter says denying it just proves they choose to live a lie rather than the truth. Because if they acknowledge the flood, then they have to acknowledge a God who brings judgment, who judges wickedness. That's why they willfully deny it. It's like the, the homosexual community hijacking the rainbow as their logo, their flag. The rainbow was a, a symbol, a sign that God would not judge the world again by water. But as Peter puts it right here in our text, next time judgment is reserved for fire. But by using that rainbow as a symbol, they're denying that judgment is coming. They're, they're saying, hey, you know, we can live the way we want to live. We're not going to be judged. Peter here says, just as the world was destroyed in the days of Noah, it'll be destroyed again by fire, whether you believe it or not. So how much time do we have left? When is Jesus coming back? I will tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back right on time. Right on time. Here's something we need to know about God. He's always right on time. God's never late. He's not early. In fact, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in His time. We don't know when Jesus will return because Jesus Himself says no man knows the day or the hour. But what we do know is that it could be any day now. Any moment now. Now how do I know? Well, look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I always like the story of the little boy who was taking it easy, laying on the grass, looking up into the sky, and, and, and identifying shapes of the clouds. And he's talking to God, and he says, God, how long is a million years? God answers, in my frame, it's about a minute. Boy asks, well, God, how much is a million dollars? Well, God answered, to me, it's a penny. The boy then asked, God, can I have a penny? God answered, sure, just a minute. <laughs> Listen, our God transcends time as we know it. We're told in, in 1, John, or 1 John 1, 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we know that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And since God is light, that means that He's outside of our time continuum. Maybe you've heard this analogy before. Take the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. If you park yourself in a really good spot, you can see the parade as it goes before you and it makes its turn around the corner and you see the next float or the next band or the next balloon and, and the character, it all happens. But if you stay home where you're more comfortable, it's nice and warm and cozy, there's no people, you got your coffee and you're watching it on TV, you get the perspective of the blip overhead. You can see the whole thing from the beginning to the end. 
It's the same way that God sees things. He sees the beginning from the end. Now, what's interesting is that Einstein developed in the theory of relativity, and it's since been proven through satellite studies, that if you could jump on a beam of light traveling at 186,000 miles per second and go on a journey to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, it would take you four and a half years to get there at the speed of 186 miles per second, and then four and a half years to get back. So let's suppose you did that, traveled there, traveled there on a beam of light. You've been gone a total of nine years. Now you come back. What's interesting is what has taken place while you were gone. You were gone for nine years traveling at the speed of light, but when you get back to Springfield, it doesn't quite look the same anymore. Because according to Earth time, you've been gone a whopping 6,000 years. That was Einstein's theory. I don't even understand how that works. But it's been proven. And I might add, light travels much faster than sound. That's why the things you say to your teenagers now won't reach them until they're in their 40s. But (laughs) you know it's true. But we know that time slows down the faster you travel so that if you pass the speed of light, time will stop. It ceases to move. So it's intriguing to me that John describes the Lord this way, that God is light. He's not traveling at the speed of light. He is light. So since he is light, then we're talking that God has his own timetable. So when Jesus says in Revelation 22:20, I am coming quickly, it's quick. Even though it's been 2,000 years, it's nothing to the Lord. Jesus is coming. Keep looking up. Listen, for the Christian who knows his truth and embraces his truth, they can trust God 100% because God's word is true. But let me give you six facts about God that we as believers can trust, and then we'll close. The first fact, we serve a supreme being. According to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. Secondly, we have the solid fact that Jesus is God, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have, thirdly, the solid fact that our Bible has been divinely inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Fourthly, the greatest gift, Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Know that. We have the fact, the fifth one, all who receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior are children of God. John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who what? Who believe in his name. And finally, we have the fact, we know for sure Jesus is coming back. We have his word on it. Revelation 22, 12 and 13, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We can go on and on, fact after fact, that's found in God's word that opens the heart of every believer to the glories of a great God that we serve and know. But still, with all those facts, you may be asking, Why? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? I'm ready, Lord, we're ready to go. Let's close with verse 9. Look at verse 9. Peter tells us why. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, 
as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he wants more people to get saved. I know we look around in our society and we grow impatient because we see the wickedness. And we think, Lord, come quickly. Put an end to all of this, please. Maybe we, like James and John, we say to the Lord, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven, Lord? It's time to toast them, Lord. But we forget what Jesus said to James and John when they wanted that. Jesus said in Luke 9, 55 and 56, He turned and He rebuked them. And He said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I think that says it all. As we look around, we grow impatient. But he, as he looks around, he sees one more soul that needs to get saved. I mean, think about this. The Lord could have come back back in the 70s during the Jesus movement, but he didn't. Anybody here a Christian before 1970? You gave your life before 1970. There's a few of you here. So look around. None of these people would be here if Jesus would have came back back then. How about 1988? There's 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come back in 1988. Anybody got, how many were saved before 1988? There's still a bunch of you guys here that would not be here if Jesus came back in 1988. See, God waited for you to come to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe He's still waiting for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ and today the Lord is touching your heart. Maybe you're the last one that he wants to get saved before the rapture of the church happens. And I would say to you, would you come on already? (laughs) We want to get out of here. What are you waiting for? Give your life to Christ. Now, if we are saved, do you know that we can hasten the day of the Lord? How do we do that? By sharing our faith. Sharing our faith. See, it's God's heart to save mankind. It's His method of salvation to use you and to use me. That's our time is short. The gospel, gospel message is not to be whispered in the corner, but shouted aloud on the rooftops. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel or its appeal. Don't, don't be embarrassed by it, by its simplicity. Don't add to it, take away from it. Just proclaim it. Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners. He died upon the cross. He rose again on the third day. And He's coming back very soon to take us to be with Him. And if you put your faith and trust in Him today, you will go with Him. He's coming for you as well. That's the message that we have. That's the message that we have to get out. And that's the message we have to proclaim. So may God grant to us by His Spirit the boldness to share this hope that we have. Jesus is coming soon. Maranatha, keep looking up. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that Your word says you are coming soon, Lord. We look at the signs. We look at what's happening in our world and we believe it. We know it as a fact. And Lord, we look and we say, Lord, this could be the generation that we see your return. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here in this room that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today. Lord, would you touch their heart? Would you help them to see their need for you? And then give their life to you this morning. While their heads are about and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this, this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? I want to give you that opportunity. All you have to do is raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to Christ. It's making that commitment to follow Jesus Christ for yourself. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? You want to put your faith and trust in Him. If He were to come back today, you want to know for sure that you'd go to heaven. 
Just raise your hand so I can see that. Anybody at all? God loves you. Send His Son to die for you. To give you life, abundant life here on this earth and the promise of eternity in heaven. But you've got to give your life to Him. Let Him take the reins of your life. Let Him take control of your life. Quit trying to do it on your own. Give your life to Christ. Anybody at all? Before we close, just raise your hand. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of your coming. Help us to live for you. If it could happen today, Lord, or 50 years from now, either way, Lord, we want to serve you because of all that you've done and how much you love us. Bless uh, us, Lord, as we go our way this morning. Help us to look for those divine appointments to share the gospel with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand